Part three, chapters three and four of Democracy in America, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, volume two, by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part three, chapter three. Why the Americans show so little sensitiveness in their own country and are so sensitive in Europe. The temper of the Americans is vindictive, like that of all serious and reflecting nations. They hardly ever forget an offence, but it is not easy to offend them, and their resentment is as slow to kindle as it is to abate. In aristocratic communities, where a small number of persons manage everything, the outward intercourse of men is subject to settled conventional rules. Everyone then thinks he knows exactly what marks of respect or of condescension he ought to display, and none are presumed to be ignorant of the science of etiquette. These usages of the first class in society afterwards serve as a model to all the others, besides which each of the latter lays down a code of its own, to which all its members are bound to conform. Thus the rules of politeness form a complex system of legislation, which it is difficult to be perfectly master of, but from which it is dangerous for anyone to deviate so that men are constantly exposed involuntarily to inflict or to receive bitter affronts. But as the distinctions of rank are obliterated, as men differing in education and in birth meet and mingle in the same places of resort, it is almost impossible to agree upon the rules of good breeding. As its laws are uncertain, to disobey them is not a crime, even in the eyes of those who know what they are. Men attach more importance to intentions than to forms, and they grow less civil, but at the same time less quarrelsome. There are many little attentions which an American does not care about. He thinks they are not due to him, or he presumes that they are not known to be due. He therefore either does not perceive a rudeness, or he forgives it. His manners become less courteous, and his character more plain and masculine. The mutual indulgence which the Americans display, and the manly confidence with which they treat each other, also results from another deeper and more general cause which I have already adverted to in the preceding chapter. In the United States the distinctions of rank in civil society are slight, in political society they are null. An American, therefore, does not think himself bound to pay particular attentions to any of his fellow-citizens, nor does he require such attentions from them towards himself. As he does not see that it is his interest eagerly to seek the company of any of his countrymen, he is slow to fancy that his own company is declined. Despising no one on account of his station, he does not imagine that any one can despise him for that cause, and until he has clearly perceived an insult, he does not suppose that an affront was intended. The social condition of the Americans naturally accustoms them not to take offence in small matters, and, on the other hand, the democratic freedom which they enjoy transfuses this same mildness of temper into the character of the nation. The political institutions of the United States constantly bring citizens of all ranks into contact and compel them to pursue great undertakings in concert. People thus engaged have scarcely time to attend to the details of etiquette, and they are besides too strongly interested in living harmoniously for them to stick at such things. They therefore soon acquire a habit of considering the feelings and opinions of those whom they meet more than their manners, and they do not allow themselves to be annoyed by trifles. I have often remarked in the United States that it is not easy to make a man understand that his presence may be dispensed with. Hints will not always suffice to shake him off. 
I contradict an American at every word he says, to show him that his conversation bores me. He instantly labours with fresh pertinacity to convince me. I preserve a dogged silence, and he thinks I am meditating deeply on the truth which he is uttering. At last I rush from his company, and he supposes that some urgent business hurries me elsewhere. This man will never understand that he wearies me to extinction, unless I tell him so, and the only way to get rid of him is to make him my enemy for life. It appears surprising at first sight that the same man transported to Europe suddenly becomes so sensitive and captious that I often find it as difficult to avoid offending him here as it was to put him out of countenance. These two opposite effects proceed from the same cause. Democratic institutions generally give men a lofty notion of their country and of themselves. An American leaves his country with a heart swollen with pride. On arriving in Europe, he at once finds out that we are not so engrossed by the United States and the great people which inhabits them as he had supposed, and this begins to annoy him. He has been informed that the conditions of society are not equal in our part of the globe, and he observes that among the nations of Europe the traces of rank are not wholly obliterated, that wealth and birth still retain some indeterminate privileges, which force themselves upon his notice whilst they elude definition. He is therefore profoundly ignorant of the place which he ought to occupy in this half-ruined scale of classes, which are sufficiently distinct to hate and despise each other, yet sufficiently alike for him to be always confounding them. He is afraid of ranging himself too high. Still more is he afraid of being ranged too low. This twofold peril keeps his mind constantly on the stretch, and embarrasses all he says and does. He learns from tradition that in Europe ceremonial observances were infinitely varied according to different ranks. This recollection of former times completes his perplexity, and he is the more afraid of not obtaining those marks of respect which are due to him, as he does not exactly know in what they consist. He is like a man surrounded by traps. Society is not a recreation for him, but a serious toil. He weighs your least actions, interrogates your looks, and scrutinizes all you say lest there should be some hidden allusion to front him. I doubt whether there was ever a provincial man of quality so punctilious in breeding as he is. He endeavours to attend to the slightest rules of etiquette, and does not allow one of them to be waved towards himself. He is full of scruples, and at the same time of pretensions. He wishes to do enough, but fears to do too much. And as he does not very well know the limits of the one or of the other, he keeps up a haughty and embarrassed air of reserve." But this is not all. Here is yet another double of the human heart. An American is forever talking of the admirable equality which prevails in the United States. Aloud he makes it the boast of his country, but in secret he deplores it for himself, and he aspires to show that, for his part, he is an exception to the general state of things which he vaunts. There is hardly an American to be met with who does not claim some remote kindred with the first founders of the colonies and as for the scions of the noble families of England, America seemed to me to be covered with them. When an opulent American arrives in Europe, his first care is to surround himself with all the luxuries of wealth. He is so afraid of being taken for the plain citizen of a democracy, that he adopts a hundred distorted ways of bringing some new instance of his wealth before you every day. His house will be in the most fashionable part of the town. He will always be surrounded by a host of servants, I have heard an American complain that in the best houses of Paris the society was rather mixed. The taste which prevails there was not pure enough for him, 
and he ventured to hint that, in his opinion, there was a want of elegance of manner. He could not accustom himself to see wit concealed under such unpretending forms. These contrasts ought not to surprise us. If the vestiges of former aristocratic distinctions were not so completely effaced in the United States, the Americans would be less simple and less tolerant in their own country. They would require less, and be less fond of borrowed manners in ours. Chapter 4 Consequences of the Three Preceding Chapters When men feel a natural compassion for their mutual sufferings, when they are brought together by easy and frequent intercourse, and no sensitive feelings keep them asunder, it may readily be supposed that they will lend assistance to one another whenever it is needed. When an American asks for the cooperation of his fellow-citizens, it is seldom refused, and I have often seen it afforded spontaneously and with great good will. If an accident happens on the highway, everybody hastens to help the sufferer. If some great and sudden calamity befalls a family, the purses of a thousand strangers are at once willingly opened, and small but numerous donations pour in to relieve their distress. It often happens amongst the most civilized nations of the globe that a poor wretch is as friendless in the midst of a crowd as a savage in his wilds. This is hardly ever the case in the United States. The Americans, who are always cold and often coarse in their manners, seldom show insensibility, and if they do not proffer services eagerly, yet they do not refuse to render them. All this is not in contradiction to what I have said before on the subject of individualism, the two things are so far from combating each other that I can see how they agree. Equality of conditions, whilst it makes men feel their independence, shows them their own weakness. They are free, but exposed to a thousand accidents, and experience soon teaches them that, although they do not habitually require the assistance of others, a time almost always comes when they cannot do without it. We constantly see in Europe that men of the same profession are ever ready to assist each other, they are all exposed to the same ills, and that is enough to teach them to seek mutual preservatives, however hard-hearted and selfish they may otherwise be. When one of them falls into danger, from which the others may save him by a slight transient sacrifice or a sudden effort, they do not fail to make the attempt. Not that they are deeply interested in his fate, for if, by chance, their exertions are unavailing, they immediately forget the object of them, and return to their own business but a sort of tacit and almost involuntary agreement has been passed between them, by which each one owes to the others a temporary support which he may claim for himself in turn. Extend to a people the remark here applied to a class, and you will understand my meaning. A similar covenant exists, in fact, between all the citizens of a democracy. They all feel themselves subject to the same weakness and the same dangers, and their interest, as well as their sympathy, makes it a rule with them to lend each other mutual assistance when required. The more equal social conditions become, the more do men display this reciprocal disposition to oblige each other. In democracies no great benefits are conferred, but good offices are constantly rendered. A man seldom displays self-devotion, but all men are ready to be of service to one another. End of Part 3 Chapters 3 and 4